Welcome to Bruin Source. This is Zed. This is Kevin. We're back uh, after a week of a lot of UCLA happenings going on. Um, let's start with football today. I think we've seen a lot of momentum shifting once Coach Foster has taken over the mantle of UCLA football head coach, especially on the NIL front. I guess let's start there um, because... Chip Kelly famously ignored NIL for his entire tenure, and uh, Deshaun Foster has stepped in within a week or two, I would say. It looks like there is a ton of NIL money flowing in. What do you make of that? Yeah, it's like when when you get rid of nothing and you compare it to something, and make, whatever the, the analogy there is, right? <laughs> um, that's basically what, what this is right now. Uh, the last coach was not only doing nothing you could probably make the case that he like actively bankrupted the football program over the course of like his tenure because completely ignored donorship um altogether before nil let alone during nil when it's now just a big part of the lifeblood of your program and to the new coach coach foster uh, to his credit taking the big meetings going out there, talking to people, don't know what exactly it is, you know, he's doing those meetings and such, but hey, uh, money's coming in, and and we don't know the numbers, we don't know how much, it's never enough, right, uh, it, it's, you always need more, but the mere fact that you see the coach, like, publicizing NIL, um, going out there asking for, you just see effort, um, and, and that, that alone is, is a great start. There's effort and it feels like Men of Westwood itself is being more active and is being allowed to be more active with Deshaun Foster promoting it. But also it feels like the admin is a little bit more bought into whatever is going on with NIL. So all good signs. I mean, even on Twitter, uh, Men of Westwood has been posting not dollar numbers by any means, but, you know, there's they're posting indications of big dollar, big money donations now. What those constitute, I don't know. I mean, are those big dollar donations? $10,000, you know, 50000 100000 million, I, who knows? But the, the point is there's finally money starting to flow into NIL, which UCLA is, was very bad at doing under Chip Kelly. So all, all signs point in the right direction here. And it's exciting to see. Uh, how that will actually manifest itself, though we're seeing some early signs of recruiting also starting to pick up just by the sheer fact that we're offering people again. Yeah, you see the tweets going out right now and you see the, you know, uh, offers going out for 2025 and uh, 2026. Usually don't see any I mean, it's not usually you hadn't seen any news like this over the past six years. That's just not the way UCLA operated. So again, that's that's good. Um, you'd I, I, there's still more work to be done. Uh, you know, for example, um, is UCLA offering at the rate still that it, the peer its peer schools in the Big Ten are doing, especially the upper echelon ones? I, I'd say no, still not. But uh, you know, baby steps, uh, doing more than what we've probably seen in past years. And hopefully, you know, as the month goes on and the staff fills out and they're able to do more of that stuff, uh, you'll see them do it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we're not going to see this turnaround like completely in a 180 fashion overnight, right? I think the signs of life are there, though. And the signs of life in a very short amount of time, which is encouraging, it's been about two weeks I think now it's the 21st today. So yeah, a little, a little under two weeks, I think since coach Foster actually took the job and we've already seen, you know, NIL increase. We've seen the recruiting um, offers pick up. So uh, kudos to kudos to Deshaun Foster for kind of getting the ball rolling very quickly on that front. And we, we talked about this last episode, but these are two, very basic foundational things that Foster needs to get going in order to be successful at UCLA. And uh, all signs point to at least him starting to try and really, you know, pushing the envelope a little bit here. So kudos to him. 
Um, just to be clear, we're not saying that this is already a success by any means. I think it's way too early to, to say that. But the early signs are good that Deshaun Foster is, is taking the right steps to you know, get the football program some life. And can't be, can't be mad about that. But, you know, from a staff perspective... Let's talk about that a little bit. So I don't think we're going to touch the D.C. side of things today, Kevin, unless you feel differently. But no, I think Ikai Kamaloy, we're pretty set with him at D.C. and We kind of know what he's about. We'll see how that turns out. But the really big question right now is who is Deshaun Foster going to hire as his offensive coordinator? Yeah, so... Obviously, it's a big hire. Um, if Foster is going to take the CEO type role, which is what it's what's been told, right? He's going to take the CEO type role. He's going to go and set up the infrastructure and do the hard work that way. Then it's pretty important that his offensive coordinator to be ready to go on day one, um, like having some serious experience, putting together game plans, calling plays. Um, and then ideally also, you know, recruiting and developing players in college. Um, a very important hire and probably the key to, the key to getting this off to, you know, setting it up for success. And, and, and the names being tossed around right now, I guess we can go there, right? Um, you have some college guys uh, on the list. So you have, uh, you know, I, I think... If I had to pulse it right now, the fan favorite would be Brennan Marion, um, offensive coordinator at UNLV, uh, up-tempo offense. He's worked with a lot of great, um, you know, considered offensive minds, the likes of you know Gus Malzahn. Um, I mean, UCLA fans, close your ears, but but he was a big uh, proponent and, and under the, the the Chris Alt pistol uh, system. Um, <laughs> You know, Mike Norvell. He, so he's worked a lot of, of, of good, good good offensive coaches or renowned offensive coaches, and he's and he's had he had success at, at UNLV uh, this year with with kind of blending all that together. Uh, and so I think if you ask if you pulled UCLA fans, that would be the one that I think they would want. Um, but it looks like well, he yeah he fits a lot of the billing that I think. You know, UCLA fans are looking for in a coach right now, right? He's young, he's energetic. Uh, the feeling is that he's a good recruiter and he'll put the time and effort into that. So he, he checks those boxes as well, as uh, aside from him being, you know, considered a good offensive mind and, and kind of innovating in that space. My concern with him, and, and I, I actually really like Brandon Marion, and I would pop, probably fall into that camp of him being my favorite guy, uh, his go-go offense has never really been tested at a power four, power five level. Yeah, uh, it's worked at only lower levels. Will it actually translate into high-level football? I don't know. Um, the criticism you see about that offense is it's one of those offenses that really tries to trick the the defense often, and once that gets kind of figured out, it's a little bit easier to stop. Um, so there, there's some risk here, I think, but, you know, for UCLA to go out and get kind of a hot name in the coaching market, uh, would be, I think a win for not just the offense, but also just the image of the program as well. Yeah. I mean, how ironic would it be that, uh, the first year after Chip Kelly is when UCLA will truly run a no, an up-tempo, no huddle offense. Uh, that th- that would be the irony of it all. Um, I think in the in the interim, because you're right. Uh, when you have these like up tempo, the, the you know what he, they call this the go go offense, right? But but we've seen variations of no huddle up tempo offenses. Uh, it, it's it's a great way when you are at a talent disadvantage to you know some schools that you're going to be playing. And, and frankly, in 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 the front part of the Big Ten, uh, you know, run in here. Uh, UCLA will be uh, not always an advantage. Uh, if they, there's probably about half the schools in the in the upcoming league, um, you know, I, definitely about four to five, where UCLA will be at a talent disadvantage, um, especially in year one and year two of the Big Ten. And so, 
an offense like that, I mean, it's 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 mainly look designed to kind of offset some of that stuff. So so that can that can be good. But like you said, uh, over time, you would hope that you can recruit and develop, and you know, could get a guy like Brennan Marion, uh, you know, adapt eventually over time to not having to just trick people and to play a bit more straight up. The other side of this then is so that's the college route. Um, the more other names that are kind of jumping up the top of the lists that that you hear about now are NFL guys. Um, and before we even get to the names, like. It, it, it's just interesting um, because you go back to you know, what what is Deshaun Foster's role? Well, if he's, if he's going to be the CEO type coach and he's going to put in a lot of the energy and effort into the recruiting, the donor, the fundraising, all that stuff, um, maybe his thinking here is that an experienced NFL guy will know his football really well um, and he can take care of that while he goes and builds the infrastructure. I still think it's important that I, there needs to be a culture built on the UCLA staff of just working hard in all aspects of college football. So that's the one thing that concerns me about that route. But I don't know how you feel about it. No, I agree. I, I don't think recruiting is a spectator sport, right? It's not something that you know, some coaches can sit on the sideline and, and watch while other coaches kind of do it. I, I think that you need to have a cohesive vision across all of your coaches and all of your coaches on either side of the ball need to help contribute to the, to getting the talent that you need to win games. I don't think you can uh, have an offensive coordinator be like, all right, these are the types of guys that I want, but not actually put the effort into getting those guys. I, I think it's just, it doesn't work that way in college football, and that, it really never has. Uh, I think that, that that can work for a short amount of time, but I think eventually it falls apart. I, I, I get if that is where Deshaun Foster is coming from. Um, I get that line of thinking, but I would hope that he has learned his lesson from the Chip Kelly era and the him seeing this kind of firsthand. Like, you can't just have half coaches recruiting, half not recruiting, because it doesn't, doesn't work. So now I guess let's just jump straight to the names, uh, because... so. The rumored leader in the clubhouse right now is Eric Bieniemy, uh, who is a big name in football uh, because of his work with the Chiefs. And a couple of years ago, you know, the, the the coaching fraternity was some of them were in uproar that he didn't get his opportunity to be a head coach uh, in the NFL. And kind of after being you know turned down for a lot of those jobs this past year, obviously went to Washington and um, up and down results. I, I think. Obviously, you know, the coaching staff got let go at Washington, and so he's not in a job. And a lot of the, the NFL cycle has kind of gone through. And so he can choose to be a position coach, or I guess this is the incentive for him, is he can be an offensive coordinator uh, at, at UCLA um, from for him. And so the results for him were kind of up and down. Um, I think it's been perceived as a complete dumpster fire, whatever happened this year uh, in Washington. You look at the actual results, and it was about a middle-of-the-pack offense, um, which I think, you know, <laughs> it's not as if, you know, Washington had the roster of the Baltimore Ravens here. Um, or, you know... You had to go there. I, I, yeah, first name that came to mind. Promise, that's all it was. <laughs> um, you know, it, and, and so was it... You know, was it great? Did he set the world on fire to where, hey, this guy needed to get a head coaching job? Clearly not. He's unemployed. Was it a, the disaster it was? I don't I don't know if it was that either. Um, middle of the pack in, like, the total offense statistics, pretty high up there uh, in the pass offense, uh, you know, stats. You know, well, they were losing half all their games. Yeah, so there's that. Um, offensive efficiency, you know, uh, Ironically, uh, you know, some of the advanced stats in that had them second in the league just because of, uh, you know, in, in, in efficiency and, and, and stuff like that. So up and down. Don't want to belabor the point. Um, you know, obviously someone that has cachet, but 
opinions vary pretty widely about him. Yeah, I think Bienemy is a guy, like you said, two years ago was probably one of the hottest names in football, coaching-wise. It feels like all of a sudden his name has kind of diminished a little bit. His, you, you talked about the commander's offense being just mediocre at best. Uh, I think in some of those statistical categories, they're like, you know, bottom half uh, of the league. So didn't really light the, the league on fire there. I think there's a kind of a, a feeling that, hey, <laughs> this guy might be a, a solid coach, but some of his his success was bolstered by obviously having a head coach who is an all-time great at this point. I think you can call Andy Reid that. Uh, and then a generational-type quarterback, right? Um, you have Pat Mahomes, who's your quarterback. You have guys like Tyreek Hill as your wide receiver, who's another you know potential all-time great type of uh, receiver. Yeah, you're going to put together some pretty good offenses there. And so you take that away, you take that talent away, you take, you know, head coaching kind of uh, mentorship or leadership away, and you put that offense together somewhere else with lesser talent and lesser, you know, head coaching with Ron Rivera, and it kind of didn't have as much success. And so does that mean that he can come to UCLA and, and find not find success again? No, I don't think that's true. I, I think that uh, Eric Bieniemy probably is a good football mind, but I, I think he's going to probably struggle in the college game. He has not coached in college for more than a decade now. Um, you know, he was at Colorado for a while. He was actually at UCLA under Durrell for a couple of years as well. But, you know, going back to that earlier point of who is going to recruit I don't think Eric Bieniemy is going to be a guy who's going to be hitting the recruiting uh, trail hard, coming straight out of the NFL, not having recruited in this modern era of college football. It just feels like a really strange fit. Now, going back to the earlier point around um, Brendan Marion, like from an image perspective for the for the uh, football program, sure, I think it's a win. Um, you, you you get the splashy name, you get a good, maybe a good coach out of it, but the splashy name I think will make some headlines across you know the football universe. Like, oh, wow, UCLA went and hired Eric Bieniemy. Um, but the fact that he's still unemployed is a little bit weird to me, especially, you know, thinking about just two years ago, he was kind of that hot ticket uh, guy, uh, which leads me to believe like a lot of uh, – the football kind of uh, coaching community and those staffs have, have uh, cooled on his abilities a little bit. But we'll see. Um, I, I think there's some other names that are kind of out there that are being considered um, from the college ranks as well. We, we've you know talked about Tommy Reese as potential head coach at one point, but Sounds like his name's being thrown around as potential offensive coordinator as well. Look, Tommy Reese put together some good offenses at Notre Dame, got him in the Alabama job, put it together decent offense at Alabama. What is a red flag to me, and then, you know, before we even get into the red flags, I mean, he's young, he's energetic, he will recruit, he knows how to work with talent, and he knows the modern college game. I think those are all really good positives what's a red flag to me is both talk to Notre Dame fans or talk to Bama fans look at his offenses and they all kind of sputtered out and all those fan bases are kind of like we we were over this guy um so can he do that with lesser talent at UCLA I don't know how successful that'll be yeah so I've watched a lot of Tommy Reese over the years and and I don't get it um like I, 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 clearly, people smarter than me who get paid a lot more than me see something different than than what we see. Um, I'm sure. It, so he's had a lot of success as a recruiter. Um, so that box would be checked. Um, at Notre Dame was a very good recruiter. Um, and I mean, you don't everyone recruits at Alabama, uh, but but did very well there. 
So he gets that side of it. Um, you know, he is known to be a very, you know, a, a, as a player, because I, I, I watched Tommy Reese a lot as a player, uh, you know, very, one of those like cerebral gym rat type guys. Um, so has a good reputation there. Um, but you hit the nail on the head. I mean, this was never, you know, that great offense that was out there that everyone wants to go and get a piece of. In fact, it was usually a pretty middle-of-the-road offense. Um, and you look no further than this. what happened this year at Alabama. Uh, you know, earlier in the year, they, they were struggling. They were nowhere. Um, and they and Tommy Reese benched Jalen Milrow, brought in Tyler Buckner, who came from Notre Dame with him. Um, and, it, and against South Florida, it was a disaster. It was a complete disaster. And if you read about kind of what happened there, Nick Saban had a come to Jesus moment with him where he sat him down and he said, hey, um, you're starting Jalen Mil- Milrow and you're not doing all this fun and gun stuff. You're running. You're going to do this the rest of the year. And we're going to be this is how we're going to have success. And he kind of had to operate in those parameters the rest of the year. And Alabama went off to the, the college football playoff and won the SEC. Um so, you know, would he do that here? I, I think Tommy Reese, you know, again, it would be a good splash for the program, you know, a big up-and-coming coach that's out there. If UCLA could attract a guy like that and pay him that kind of money, it would be a good image thing for the program. I think he would recruit well overall, and I think oh, probably would be a good influence on 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 Deshaun um, and, and just the coaching staff in general because he's been at places where work ethic and the coaching staff is, is important. But do I think that his offenses are going to light anyone on fire? No, because they didn't at those places. Yeah, we'll see what what happens with it. His name keeps getting thrown out, so I don't know. This is more of a, a an agent kind of thing, or what's going on there. But I feel like any job that opens up, you see Tommy Reese's name associated with it. He does have a UCLA connection. His dad was. Uh, at UCLA for a number of years uh, as a, a recruiting um, like coordinator or, or head of recruiting. So I don't remember his exact title, but um, so he, he does have some familiarity with the program and has been around UCLA in the past. Uh, so there's that connection for what that's worth. Yeah, he was born in LA, um, believe it or not. So there's that. Right, there you go. Uh, the other name that we've seen tossed around a little bit is scott frost our good friend scott frost now this one would be really funny to me because scott frost basically made his name on taking chip kelly's offense and you know modernizing it a little bit and did really really well with it for a number of years until he basically (laughs) fell apart at nebraska and has not been coaching for the last two years because he feels a little untouchable uh, after the dumpster fire he put together in uh, in Lincoln, I, I I don't want this to happen. I don't know if he still has the juice um, left in him to come back as an OC. I, I think he obviously has put together very good offenses in the past, but you know that was a while ago. But a part of me wants it to happen only for him to have some fire in his belly and how funny would it be if he ran his version of blur and was insanely successful uh when chip kelly could not put that together here i think this would be a disaster this would be um, (laughs) this would not be good um scott scott frost had has had that one kind of magical year at UCF and, and yes they did really well but if you kind of look like so much has come out about this uh, about how he went to Nebraska instead of going to Florida um, in that coaching cycle the, the infamous one that got us Chip Kelly right uh, and, and supposedly the Florida people they talked to Scott Frost and they they interviewed him pretty you know intensely and whatnot and just got the impression that this this guy was just way too young for this just, like he he was not put together enough to be the face of of a program and he went to nebraska and that's kind of what happened um it was a train wreck and never really got better they weren't good on offense they weren't good on defense i think this would be a complete disaster um and i hope it doesn't happen 
Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I don't think there's a world that Scott Frost would be a good coach for us, but off chance that he does end up being an OC here, and I would hope that he just lights the world on fire with a a better version of Chip, Chip the Chip Blur. Um, there would be some level of irony there that I think, <laughs> as a UCLA fan, I I uh, would be remiss not to acknowledge any other names or any anybody on your wish list i think from a wish list standpoint i i would go again brennan marion is just the one that makes sense right now it's kind of like people are talking about him like they were talking about tony white for the head coaching search it's like hey um he checks certain boxes like he's a smaller school right now he's had success it looks like it can translate, pays more money, you should be able to come over. So so I would probably lean there. I'm not as down on Biennemi as I think, you know, some fans might be. Like Washington, they had the worst defense in the league last year. Um, that catches up to you. So, I mean, you know, as you said, they were down in a lot of games because of that. Uh, Sam Howell was the quarterback. Right. Uh, so so and with all that to still put together like a team's level offense um, and he's clearly a pass happy offense combined with the fact that the Chiefs, um, you know, middle of the year uh, when they were struggling, like they, they openly talked about missing him on the coaching staff and whatnot. So uh, and, and you know, they won the Super Bowl, so they clearly didn't miss him all that much. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm not as down on that. Just again, the, the main question is recruiting um but the other question when you're bringing coaches from the pros is like it is different coaching college kids you know you can't bring your 100 page playbook um and expect 18 to 21 year olds to grasp it the way that professionals do um and, and that's that's always a challenge for these pro coaches coming into college like you know it's like you draw all these things on the whiteboard and it's like okay great what well, do your players know that like do they know what to do um and that's that's the challenge with any kind of pro coach that comes over. Yeah, I mean the 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 you we talk about like you know coaches leaping from the college level to the pro level and it being kind of a learning curve. I I think there's a learning curve the other way as well as you pointed out. I, I think there's there's the aspect of, hey, getting your team to know it, but also the tight time frame that we're, you're trying to teach a playbook to somebody, right? It's you come in, especially for f- first year OC, coming and uh, starting a job, you have spring and you have fall essentially to help drill and practice the, the playbook. So it's not a tight time frame, uh, especially you know when you're installing a completely new system somewhere. So whoever we do get, it will be interesting to see, um, you know, if it is an NFL guy, how that translates. There is one other name we haven't really talked about, and it's the internal guy um, that we could see happening. And I hope it doesn't happen. But Tim Drevno, who is the offensive line coach, um, I think he had a co OC title at one point and he has coordinated offenses in the past I am not for the sire as well yeah I think I'm that gonna, would be a disaster I'm, I'm gonna cut this one short this would not be good because um, again uh, Tim Drevino was OC at my other team um, right uh, for three years Um and it was particularly like one of those years was not good. You don't have to be nice. Yeah, it was. So, so two of those years, right, the players were really good and like that was fine. Uh, you know, Harbaugh came in. He basically like ran the show. But the last year, I think, is like more or less like what we would be playing with, which is like, you know, new quarterback. Uh, not, our, not a new quarterback, but like, you know, different type of quarterback offensive line and and it was a train wreck it was a complete train wreck um you know tim drevno was always an offensive coordinator uh, by by figurehead only and making him the primary play caller and like giving him the keys to the kingdom would just be completely a disaster 
I agree with you. And speaking of disasters, I will keep this point really short because I think it's the last name I will throw out that I've seen being mentioned uh, as a potential candidate for OC is David Shaw. If David Shaw is somehow hired or even remotely seriously considered for this job, we should just fold the program. I agree. And I won't say anything more. (laughs) Um, But on, on that point, who is running the search, do you think? Is this a Deshaun Foster, purely Deshaun Foster-led thing? Is this a Martin Jarman-led thing? Is it a combination of both? Like, what are your thoughts there? Because I know there's a lot of fans kind of wringing their hands over this aspect of it, especially with Jarman making some comments around, hey, we, we want to make sure that you know, uh, Coach Foster has some mentors and senior, you know, coaches on the staff to help him out, which I think is fine. I I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I I think publicly saying that very openly feels a little strange. Um, I don't even think that feels strange. What feels strange is saying that out loud while there's a rumor that David Shaw might join the staff. That's strange. Oh, God damn it. That's a, that's a very UCLA thing to do. But, yeah, uh, I mean, look, if I would expect Martin Jarman to have some say in this or some influence here. But at the end of the day, Deshaun Foster needs to have ultimate control over this team and staff. Like, I don't think we can have an AD who, by the way, does not really have any football experience. I mean, when you think about Martin Jarman's experience going all the way back to his actual athletics days, like he was a basketball guy. And so like, I can't, I can't sit here and really feel comfortable trusting him to make the right call. Um, Especially when you're talking about like a really football centric football-minded type of hire that you need to to get here. Um, I think we're head coach, you can get away with having a decent football mind, but also like having a CEO-type person. That's fine, Um, especially since the the role of head coach for football is becoming more and more CEO-like, especially in college. Uh, OC, I feel like you really need to get a guy with X's and O's, schematic, you know, knowledge, all that kind of stuff. And if he, if Jarman is kind of leading this, I think this is going to be a disaster. I think there's some evidence to suggest that he's not leading this. Um, and, and here's, so first off, whatever the hell was happening with David Shaw seems to have cooled down. So right. That, that's, that's just, that's good. No matter who is leading this. Um, the staff uh, is largely staying intact, but but there's you know obviously Ethan Young he's been let go. It looks like they're looking at a different quarterbacks coach as well, um, and that's from the Texans where you assume this is like where Deshaun's network is leading him. It's leading him to these coaches, um, and so that tells you maybe you know Deshaun is making some decisions about who to keep and who not to keep on the staff, and so and you hope that's the way it goes. Um, now, I don't think it's a bad thing down the road. You know, Make sure you fill out your staff with your top choices. And if you want to go get an older coach to be an analyst of some sort, because that happens all the time. Uh, it happens all the time. Um, by all means, go ahead and do it. Uh, you know, go, go get two of them if you want, right? Uh, they can go drop some flashcards uh, if, if they need to. That happens all the time. You can go and find experienced head coaches who are kind of past it and don't really want to do that whole deal anymore like go give him an analyst gig and then you can just talk to him about what to do on fourth down and when should I you know have my special periods for you know third and five, third down and uh, end of game situations like you can learn that stuff from from those those guys that that's totally fine yeah no like I, I don't have any issues with with um, Foster or anybody getting those kinds of guys on the staff I, I think it feels a little weird publicly like saying it at press conferences where the head coach is being announced Uh, that felt strange to me Um, but you know it is what it is I I think it will hopefully 
you know, work itself out. And hopefully we get this hire done very quickly. I would like to, I guess not very quickly, but obviously before spring ball starts, but it's, it's going to creep up on us. Um, I think the sooner we can get somebody in, the better in the, at this point, though, just because we got to get this, the ball rolling on, you know, the scheme and whatnot, and how are we going to actually potentially build or append our current roster to whatever scheme we end up running in the spring with the transfer portal opening up again then. So we'll see. I, I think there's some interesting names out there, some not so interesting names out there. And knowing how UCLA hires coaches, we'll probably get a name that we have never talked about once. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Let's move on to basketball. Um, I guess all all good things must come to an end, to some degree, and our you know hot winning streak unfortunately came to an end last Sunday in kind of a very frustrating way. But you know, along the way, we did beat Colorado last week at home, which was good to see. Uh, especially Colorado is an interesting team. They have so much talent, yet they don't seem to be putting it together for whatever reason this year. I mean, you you have K.J. Simpson, you have um, Cody Williams, who is a, a lottery pick talent kind of player right now, and you have Tristan Da Silva, yet Colorado looks mediocre at best it's it's really strange that tad boyle was has not been able to put this team together in a a more effective way but look worked out for us ucla beat them at home and then we get to the utah game what the hell happened in that game because it was a weird one i guess let's start with saying uh you know stark difference in officiating between the two games um, and, and, and I'm not even gonna. I'm not even getting into like the technical fouls, um, right? Like, just overall officiating across those two games, and then you find out why. So the Colorado UCLA game uh, was an out of conference referee crew that 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 called that game, and I think it showed, right? Um, they let him play pretty physically. Um, that game, you know, KJ Simpson is a top twenty finalist for the Wooden Award. And Dylan Andrews put him in jail. He was in jail the whole game. Um, and which is why it's, it's disappointing when you come to the next game. Um, and the guy that basically ended up winning the game for, for, for Utah, uh, you know, Devion Smith, uh, ends up getting 17 points and was basically the driver of their offense uh, the entire, you know, late there, especially late in the game. When it got to those last three minutes, it just felt like UCLA just couldn't get a stop, uh, when, especially when they needed it. Uh, just had multiple occasions where, you know, they went up and then it was back and forth, but they always, they were always answering the score, but just couldn't get that final stop. And, and, and that was disappointing. Obviously, you know, you have to start any conversation about this game has to account for, you know, whatever happened with Sebastian Mack there. Um, completely undisciplined play, um, a cheap shot uh, to, you know, throwing his elbows around. And probably, you know, in the end, uh, perhaps the Utah player made a lot of it. I don't know. Uh, but he deserved the ejection, unfortunately. And. When that happened, you know, UCLA, on this winning run, I think it's been shown to us that they've improved a lot. They're playing well. But against a good team, they don't have limitless paths to victory. Um, and particularly at this team that struggles to get baskets, Sebastian Mack is, is pretty valuable there. He's the closer. He's the closer. And... It, when that happened, I thought you needed the two leaders on this team, which was Adembona and Dylan Andrews, to step up and kind of take the game by the scruff of the neck, show that responsibility, 
and particularly for Dambona, that means, you know, if Sebastian Mack's not going to be there, he needs to be on the floor. And if I had a pinpoint where we lost this game, that's where we lost the game. Um, you know, had a couple of bad calls on him, but but he's played a lot of basketball now, and, and you should know that can happen, especially to a guy of his reputation. That third and fourth foul uh, was completely unnecessary. And, and, and in the end, then, you know, you having to play so much of Ken Nuba and Mara and four minutes of Devin Williams in there, too, Again, we've talked about this so much. UCLA's offense is built around getting a dem bone of the ball and then throwing it around to get open shots. And when he wasn't there, you could see the offense struggled. And then just beyond that, UCLA just... There's going to be games like this where we don't make a shot. Um, and that, that was this game, particularly from outside. Lazar Stefanovic showed a lot of courage, I thought. He showed a lot of heart. He was one for eight from three. And a lot of those were open threes. Um, you know... Uh, we're getting good looks. Unfortunately, we sometimes are just, this is going to happen. It's happened earlier this year. It happened this game. And in the end, uh, you know, because of that, you take all of that into consideration. What UCLA could not absolutely do with all of that, you know, being the case was ha not be strong enough at the point of attack on defense. And, and they weren't obviously, you know, it's a heartbreaking loss in the end. Um, and the winning streak ends. The winning streak ends. It was obviously frustrating. I, I think some context around Utah, though, is they're a much older, much more experienced team. So getting pushed around a little bit, getting, you know, out-savvied a little bit down the stretch, it kind of makes sense to some degree. I mean, UCLA has, has done that to other older teams i get it but i think um they're probably better coached than say a stanford or some of the other teams in the league and they, they were able to get it done down the stretch i also do think the officiating actually really impacted this game not just from a foul perspective but also our defense is really predicated on being very physical when you think about what dylan andrews did to kj simpson a few days before the utah game he was insanely physical with him and really just choked the life out of Simpson's game in that in, in that game. With Tony Padilla calling this game, you couldn't breathe on another player. Our guys had to kind of adjust to be less physical, and when we're less physical, we just don't defend as effectively. I mean, that's the, the fact of the matter. It is what it is. So when you kind of uh, neuter the the defense a little bit in that regard, yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna play as well on that side of the, the ball. So it it's it's unfortunate. I think we need to figure out how to actually be effective defensively or more effective defensively when the physicality is forced to be toned down a little bit. I think some of this loss is on Mick also for. For a couple of reasons. I, I think he often keeps Bona out of the game a little too long. Um, and I get it. This is a balancing act. A very difficult balancing act. You play him too long, too much, he might foul out a lot quicker. But also keeping him off the floor for as long as stretches as he did. He's not in the game. You said it really well. Like Our offense completely stagnates. So if he fouls out a little earlier but we have you know a seven eight nine ten point lead at that point we might survive this game right i think that's a risk that i think cronin needs to maybe adjust to a little bit he might foul out earlier but our lead might be bigger and that's that kind of the the risk reward that we we might need to be able to take especially with the game being called like like it was last week the other thing i think cronin might have screwed up, and I think we've seen this time and time again, and this might be a hole in his, his game at this point. Maybe, I don't know if that's fair to call out, but I think it is at this point in his, his tenure at UCLA. His end-of-game coaching and play calling sometimes really suffers in, like, these last-minute kind of uh, buzzer-beater type situations. 
um, after we went up, after Dylan Andrews hit the shot, there were about six seconds, six and a half seconds left on the clock. Utah did not have a timeout at that point. Yet Cronin, you know, being the control freak that he is, called the timeout and allowed Utah to set up that, you know, very well executed play that they ended up running and scoring to win at the last second. And I think that is something, and maybe this is a youth thing, maybe he just doesn't trust this team yet, I don't know. But that is a situation that I think I would have liked to have seen him throw the dice a little bit more and say, okay, six seconds, they don't have a timeout, force them to throw the ball in and trust his guys to try to defend in that last second. I, I think the outcome might have been better for us, frankly. Well, we know what the outcome was this way. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's there. If I had to guess where he was going with that, um, it, it's what you said, right? Uh, we weren't playing well defensively in the last three minutes. And so, you know, he didn't trust this young team to know how to react in a moment, a pressure moment. And so he called timeout to kind of set that all up. Um, and he also pointed out in this post game, you know, it, the, once the free throw goes or once the shot goes in, the ball is dead. Um, Utah does have the chance to communicate, you know, call a play, call a set play, whatever that is. And um, it, it, all, it also looks like Utah had been practicing this for several weeks. Uh, so for all you know, they might have called this play in and they might have run it anyways, for all you know. Um, now, with that said, uh, you know, I, I, I still think if you do it, that way what probably ends up happening is Dylan Andrews is just going to be matched on Devion Smith kind of no matter what um, you know there'll, there'll be a, probably a big guarding the original inbounder and the way that kind of play broke down then Devion Smith goes out and Dylan Andrews probably is going to follow him the rest of the way um, and maybe that ends up you know working out okay so I think I'm a we know the result now, so I think all of us would say, "Don't call timeout." Um, hindsight's twenty twenty you know, for sure, and obviously, you know, hindsight twenty twenty. I think overall, it's it's never about one play. Point of attack defense in this game was pretty weak the last five minutes overall, to where UCLA had enough points where they had they had a lead that could have either just stayed there or they could have, you know, kind of pulled away and, and gone ahead. If Dylan Andrews plays his usual defensive game, if, you know, uh, Will McClendon uh, is able to stay in front of, like, his his man and such, then, then I think there again we also have a different result. Most definitely. Um... Yeah, it, it it was it was definitely frustrating to lose that game. It was very winnable, and we definitely, obviously, we've said this before. Every every game is a must win. So let's look at where we're at now. Fourth in the conference, so we still at the, this point have that you know protected seed going or the bye week going into the 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 Pac twelve tournament. We have a game against Southern Cal at, uh, on Saturday at home. We had the Washington trip and then, you know, the Arizona schools at home to kind of close this out. I think at this point, we need to win the, the conference tournament to get into the Pac-12 or into the, the uh, NCAAs. Is that fair? That's fair. I, I, I kind of zero in on this weekend's game against SC um, because, like, let's just be clear about where we're at this year. Um, we're on track to not make the tournament, and that's not good. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a black mark on McCronin's resume if it does end up that way. So Utah, you know, you can say... You know, so many things went wrong, and we were still in it at the end there to win the game. And you'd be right. You know, there there are positives to take away from the game, but you can't let the snowball from here. Um, and and again, we said earlier, you know, after the Utah loss when we lost by forty plus, that we wanted to just see players develop. 
But the best way to develop now, I, I, I think, now that we've seen us win games, is to keep winning games, uh, to keep that winning momentum going, to get to the end of the year. For this to even feel remotely good to miss the tournament, you got to get to the end of the year and feel like, damn, like if we just didn't lose like two games, we would have been right there. Um, and you can't let this snowball. Uh, you lose to SC this weekend, I think this gets – you. everything feels very different on Monday. So uh, I'm I'm circling that game right now. Oh, for sure, it's a rivalry game. It's obviously you know, SC came into this season with a lot of hype. They obviously have not fulfilled any of that hype, but you know, for them, they will want to win this game really, really badly. I mean, you know, crosstown rivalry. I, there's going to be a lot of hype around this game. Um, and they played they, well this they, past week, by the way. They beat Utah and lost to Colorado yeah. in triple overtime. Well, that's what I was going to say. They they finally have Collier back, um, who's playing um, good basketball. Boogie Ellis seems to be waking up a little bit more. So they, they feel like a little bit more of a dangerous team than they did the first time we played them uh, at the Galen Center. That being said, like this is, <laughs> we're, we're still talking about a pretty bad team here. And I think... UCLA needs to just, you know, focus on getting back to basics with what makes them really, really successful. And that is defense, defense, throwing a little rebounding, and then and more defense. Yep. Uh, because you, you, you focus on, on those, those really just defense, and it all kind of falls, falls together for McCronin's teams. I mean, the offense flows a lot better. We, we don't. Um, you know, get into bad habits. Like all, all things point to just playing Mick Cronin basketball, and that is def- defense first. Offense will will kind of fall into place if we do what we need to do and execute well. I think if I'm going to predict, and I'm not predicting the game, but if I'm going to, if I'm going to predict how the team will respond to that loss against Utah. I don't think this is the same team that lost games early in the season and let that snowball. I I think we've seen this already, right? We let that game in Tucson slip away and lost. And I think that was a big point. Again, big rivalry game. That was on the road. Obviously, very hostile environment. We could have really let the ball go at that point and kind of spiral downwards. But we didn't, right? We went and rattled off a big win streak right after that. And so I, I think this team has matured enough to not go down that route again. I, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, hopefully that's the way this goes um, because you want that momentum to get back a little bit. Cause I don't think this is over by any stretch. Um, you know, there's still, there's not much life uh, in terms of an at large bid, uh, but there is some if you can end the season with, with strong momentum. Um, and you can't do that without beating SC first. Sure. I think you start with SC. And if you beat Washington State and you beat Arizona at home, then I think we're having a very different conversation going into the Pac-12 tournament because I think there is a little bit of a chance now that you sneak in but but it all starts on Saturday in this kind of emotionally charged game I hope the fans show up for this I really do um obviously rivalry game it should be loud it's a blue out I hope they show up and I hope they're loud um and before we sign off I do want to make this one point the Attendance against Utah, I thought, was actually pretty good um, in comparison to some other games this year. That being said, if you're showing up to games, please, for the love of God, be loud. <laughs> I don't understand the, like, sitting in a, in a mausoleum uh, atmosphere of watching basketball, like... It's college basketball, people. Like, get up and cheer, for fuck's sake. Like, I, I just... It, as crowded as it was, like, people just don't don't cheer, and I don't get it. And same with the student section. I, I thought the student section in this game, for whatever reason, was very weirdly quiet. And I don't know if it's the, the yell crew or whatever is not doing 
their job and getting them amped up or leading them in cheers. But I know we have talked about this in the past, but the uh, the AD's office needs to do something about getting you know fans more engaged during games and getting them hyped up. Because um, if we are going to really create a home court advantage, it starts with the fans. And we need to do better. Yeah, I, I, so you're at the games, so you know that part well. I'm watching on TV, and outside of, like, the last five minutes against Utah, that sounded like it got loud at that point. Um, A little bit, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's not, it, 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 yeah, it doesn't sound very exciting there. And, And what's really bad, I think this would, this would be such a, just an easy fix. Move the students behind the camera. Uh, yeah. Because it's just, it doesn't look good every single game when, like, the first three rows are empty, and that's, like, three rows you can see on the TV. I I totally agree. I don't know why they switched it to that side. I know there was some bizarre reason they did. Because when we were in school, original poly, the, the student section was on the other side. Yeah, the press was when, on the other side. Right. Um... So I don't I don't know why that changed, but they should they should definitely get them behind the camera. I, I think it's it's uh, it's a shame that they they don't. So minor thing, but not so minor thing. But if you are going to the game, and you're listening to this, please, please bring some life to the stadium. Cheer on your team, like just just bring some energy. As I think the team especially in those clutch moments down the stretch can, can use that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a vital part of the college game. So let's, let's do our part a little bit, please. It's don't embarrass yourselves as fans, but anyways, I will get off my soapbox at this point. Um, and, uh, yeah. So big game Saturday and then we'll go from there. We'll go from there. Anything else? Um, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if I want to talk about the Oregon State game, the women's game. Um, we can mention it. That was brutal. What? First of all, from a neutral perspective, what a great game. Great game. From a UCLA perspective. Terrible game. Horrible game. Um, and it's funny, it's Corey Close, I think, is a very good coach. I think, you know, a good Bruin, she represents the school really well, um, really engaging personality, and it's, she's always, you know, rooting for UCLA as a whole, which is you love to see. But winning big games has been a really, really big knock against her during her time here and I don't know what it is about about them but it's something that she kind of falls apart in every single time we have a situation like this Oregon State game and I don't I don't know what it is I if I knew I think if we all knew we would people would do something about it we're down to to like three seed levels now um, in, in the bracket projections which you know, one point we were in the one conversation, so getting down to three is disappointing. Hopefully, we can make a run in the Pac-12 tournament, and we can see, uh, you know, where where that all ends up. Yeah, it is very disappointing. I mean, we talked about it earlier in the season. Like this team feels like it has the talent level to be a Final Four contender, right? You add Lauren Betts to the mix. You have some of the veteran leadership. You have Charisma Osborne. You know just doing, you know, rewriting a lot of the, the record books for UCLA's women's basketball. Yet, you know, we're not remotely close to winning the conference. <laughs> we have, you know, fallen in the ranks. We have, you know, fallen in the seed line. And it all kind of feels a little disappointing at this point. Um that being said, there's still a lot of season left in terms of postseason, so I think we hope that that um, 
you know, Coach Close and this team kind of gets their heads right and kind of stabilizes a little bit in these big game situations. But yeah, I guess uh, it is it is a little bit of a, a bummer to look back at where we were, you know, even six weeks ago and how hyped everybody was around this team to where we are now. And it feels like that luster's kind of gone off a little bit. But hey, that's what the tournament's for. If we can get hot at the right time, then, um, you know, I, I think this team is still really, really good and way too good to get to uh, to lose early. But we'll see. We will see. Anything else? I think we got it. Get, get everything? Cool. Um, well, I guess we will um, catch you all next week. Uh, if you are going to the game on Saturday, please please cheer against uh, our hated rivals. And um, you can find the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, everywhere else. Follow us on Twitter. And until next week, as always, go Bruins. Go Bruins.